we're talking about in church right now. You know, so much for like butterflies and all that stuff. Like at Easter, don't we usually get butterflies and we get to sort of rest in the joy of the sweet little flowers and the butterflies and the bunnies and what is this story of vengeance and violence got to do with any of that? When uh, folks come and ask to be married, there's often this hope that there might be just one scripture in there that will be sentimental enough to be read at a wedding ceremony where everybody gets to feel light and fluffy. In order to do that, they have to take what's read, usually entirely out of context, and just pretend that that's all God had to say about it. Bummer. So I think you got to dive in. In fact, all of us who have any connection to the outside world at all know that there's a lot of stuff actually going on in the world that looks remarkably like some of the stuff that God talks about, that the, that God, that the writers have brought to our attention about what God is doing in the world, in our Bibles. And that maybe it's important to learn about it, to be brave enough to talk about it. And so we have pulled this story of uh, Nabal or Nabal, depending on how you, I have the, I think sometimes I say things in a British way. Uh, if I was from Oklahoma, I might say it even more differently. We do not know how these words were pronounced. So all you have to do is sell it, just sell it. <laughs> but I'm going to be pulling just a thread from these stories. There's so much more to say. And I'm going to be making choices just as the biblical writers made choices of what thread I'm going to pull out to talk about. So visit this story yourself as well. It's even more richly laid than anything that I can offer you. So we have been talking about the story of this despicable man we read a psalm, uh, I mean a proverb about violence and not doing that, the ways that we sometimes are waylaid. We see in the story the setting of uh, David riding in the front of an army of nearly 400 men riding down into the, uh, the holdings and the, the lands of Nabal in order to do great harm in vengeance for the insult that has been rendered to him. That is where we left off. The Bible is not straightforward when it teaches us about David. The Bible is very confusing. <laughs> we get several different kinds of portraits of David, which is partly why there are so many books to be written about him, so many movies to watch about him, and so many ways to dream of him as the ultimate ruler who will reappear and bring a kingdom of prosperity. It starts with him as a boy, the youngest of eight brothers, no chance of inheriting anything. Uh, his brothers are already, as we understand, big and strapping, so probably not going to be tallest, Probably not going to be the one who can bench press the most. Probably not the best shepherd. You got eight. You got to find something. Apparently, he plays the harp. Got something there. And Samuel, at the behest of the people, 
has reluctantly agreed to name a king. Samuel did not want to do this. Kings will rob you blind, he says. Kings will take all your stuff. They're going to conscript you in the army. They're going to take the best of your cattle for themselves. Your best horses will be their best horses. You can bet on it. And the people said, we still want one. <laughs> Not sure what they were thinking. That's okay. Samuel chooses the most unlikely horse thief on the planet in this maybe eight-year-old boy and says, you're it, you're king. But apparently, in a different story, David was already kind of a strapping warrior. Oh, wait. Which story are we following? The thing is, sorry to all you literalists out there, people who like to follow a story concretely. I like to do that, too. Uh, you can't do that with the story of David. It will drive you crazy. You will find that his age changes, his notoriety changes, and what we think of him changes is in the different books. What we get from him out of Samuel is different than what we get from him out of Chronicles. We don't really know if he existed. Although, yes, win for us materialists, they have found evidence in the archaeology that says he probably did. But probably he didn't slay Goliath. Why, though, does this exist so much in our collective memory? One of the things that we do as a people, as we form ourselves and our identity to understand where our goodness is, where our God is, and how those things intersect, is we do something called commemoration, which literally means remembering together, our co-memory. One person will say, uh, and we see this in families, right? Oh, remember that time we went blueberry picking? Do you remember that time? And you fell down and you fell in the face, on your face and you scratched the side of it? Oh no, that wasn't me, that was, that was, uh, that was Joe. Joe did that. Oh, that's right. It was Joe, and it wasn't his face, was it? It was like right kind of down by his neck and he couldn't wear collared shirts for a week because it chafed so bad. Joe's like, yeah totally remember that. Together we remember things. Together we remember things. And these memories become important. If everybody sits around the dinner table and they say, God, I remember that time you were horrible. You're the worst kid ever. Gee whiz. Eight years old, I couldn't control you. Kept jumping off the chandeliers. Well, maybe you did. But someone else might say, gosh, it was so fun having you around when you were eight. You were so full of energy. And when you were jumping off the chandeliers, I knew you were going to be a high jumper. I just knew it. <laughs> How we co-remember things is important. And if we remember things with an eye towards what it tells us about God, that is even more important. And that is what the Bible is interested in. He's not, the Bible's not interested in talking about David as his fine human self, and that's clear because he does not prevent, present a fine human self a lot of the time in these stories. God is interested in showing what God does through us, through people, through the creation, through the trees and the forests and the plants and the incredible opportunity that we have when we just breathe through our imagination and our heart and our energy and our vigor, 
through our cool skill abilities. We can play harp. We can ride horses. Who knew? How fun is that? What God does through that is what concerns the divine. As a Christian people, what God is doing through who and what we are is what is of concern of us. When we write a memoir, spiritual memoirs, you look back not on recording everything that happened to you, but the arc of feeling God moving in your life. And so these stories, they get conflated sometimes. I don't know, I wasn't there when they put everything together and then put it together again and put it together again. But this was an oral culture, so these stories would be coming out of all these different areas. And the concern of the biblical writers was to show that God is good, that God is powerful, that God is active, that there are rules, that there are things that God says bring honor and things that God says brings destruction. And being a perfect human being isn't even in the equation. Isn't that good news? God works through your imperfect self. That eight-year-old swinging from the chandelier, God is totally with that kid. And aren't we glad? Isn't it important that God is? So Nabal comes from the house of Caleb. Caleb was a war hero. Caleb was one of those on the edge of the promised land who went in by Moses' asking to see what Canaan was like. He came back and he said, oh my goodness, it's beautiful there. God has led us to such a good place. We should, we should go there. And the others had seen how many people and what a fight it might be. And they said, I think there might be giants there where we shouldn't go there. Pretty sure we saw a Nephilim or two. And so they decided not to go. But later on, after the conquest is completed, it's a whole nother sermon we are not going to touch on now, but Joshua, ooh, Lord, in your mercy. So once again, though, we're trying to draw out where God is good, and that means God moves through imperfect systems. Caleb is remembered as one of the ones who wanted to boldly go in the name of God. And he is rewarded with the lands of Hebron and even into the Negev. By all accounts, this is a clan and a tribe that is greatly respected. Greatly respected. But somehow, as we learn in this story, the leaders have lost their way. They have forgotten about generosity. They've forgotten about welcoming the stranger. And Nabal knows just how to hurt David. He doesn't just insult him like we talked about last time. He insults him in a way that goes deep into David's little soul. He calls him a slave and an outlaw. David, who had been nobody, eight-year-old shepherd, found some glory in battle, married into the king's presence, King Saul, only to have to flee when he fell out of favor, is now basically a brigand. He is in the employ of the Philistine king where he is finding some, uh, some uh, uh, space that he can, um, he can live and have some power and authority because his own homeland isn't safe for him. Saul is interested in getting him out of the way. 
He's 400 men, they're, they're looting, they're sending booty to try to curry favor with the other Judean leaders and city leaders. And it's not great, it's not great. And in Chronicles, we try to sugarcoat some of that. How do we remember that together? We don't wanna remember that part of David. We wanna only have the good David, the one that meant well, the one that did good things. But David is getting wrapped up in this a little bit. He must get really wrapped up in it because he's been called a slave, the thing that hurts him most by a man who has been respected for a long time by a tribe of men, an institutional, like, like sometimes the United States gets really mad at France, right? Those are freedom fries. They're not French fries. And it's our way of, of we, we're, we're like, you, all you guys are just, well, it, when somebody that you care about, even in a city state, starts looking down on you, it hurts. This wounds David. It wounds him so much he flashes. Big reactive, big reactive push. He has sent a few men to go to Nabal and ask for generous uh, supplies at a time when Nabal is shearing his sheep and he is supposed to be generous. We learn right away that Nabal is not following God because Nabal not only says no, but he calls David names, and not just any names, a name that will land and really hurt David, who is feeling very much like a masterless slave right now. His band, probably not the sons of nobles at this point. They come from all over the place. When you list out who is with David, these are different tribes, these are different folks. David is cobbling together what support he can get. He is definitely on the outs. So for somebody less faithful than he could be, call him a slave, that had to hurt. So what does he do in a wise, grown-up way? <laughs> he straps on a sword and tells his men, 400 of us, strap on the sword. And he says out loud, not one man will be, remain alive in Nabal's household when we're done. That's what he swears his honor to. That's what he swears his honor before God to. That that would happen in order to what? Be honorable or to exact revenge and vengeance? How many of us have felt hot-headed where we do something we re just really, really regret later? Don't, I hope nobody has strapped on a sword and run on a, on a horse down a hill here. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, the servants who have seen the exchange between David's men and Nabal know this is not a good thing. They are likely men just throwing that out there, whose lives are literally on the hook for this. They are literally at risk. They go to Abigail, Nabal's wife. We don't exactly know how old she is. We don't know if she has other children. Uh, I believe she does. Uh, this is a story, remember. 
and they say, this is what happened. Nobody's going to be able to talk to him. She already knows this. And they're, they're coming. They're coming now. Abigail says, okay, now, you, 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 those donkeys, that food, those raisin cakes, those fig cakes, that flour, that, th and now she has to get between David and the household in enough time to change this course. This is, this is not a game. This is life and death stakes. She has to get that remedy on the move, on the hoof. Let's go, let's go, right now, right now. It takes days to kill a fatted calf and roast it and celebrate. She doesn't have that much time. The donkeys are loaded and off they go. She doesn't have time to wait for them either. She goes off by herself to enter with David. Can you imagine the kind of courage that takes? Any, anybody, any volunteers for uh, getting between an army of 400 uh, men who are steamed uh, about their honor being uh, slighted? Um, anybody want to do that with me? I'll just... Reminds me of like the pictures of the, remember from the Tiananmen Square, the Chinese gentleman who's standing in front of the tank? Like... So here come the men. I imagine a whole pile of dust. This is not a <laughs> wet place. Just like in the movies, here they come, down the hill, 400 horsemen. And here comes Abigail. And she stops. She gets down off the donkey and falls right down on her face. That gesture is one of total vulnerability. Could they just run over her? Could they take a sword? Do they care? Do they even care? Are they so wild-eyed that they even care? And guess what happens? They stop. They stop. One lone woman. Again, I'm reminded of the picture of... Uh, uh, it was from one of the protests in the South, a woman who was with the Black Lives Matter movement, and she was wearing these flowing robes, and she's standing there, and there's riot police standing right there, and it's like there's this truce in the space between them. What do we do? How, how do I interact with you? What do I know about you? What do you know about me? And it's just like this moment where time stops. I think time stopped that day between Abigail and David. And she asks him, not in these words, but in the words of the time, what kind of king will you be? She does this double blessing. She doesn't attack him by saying, you're such a jerk, you'll never be king like this. She says, I am already your servant. You are already king. What kind of king are you? Whew. When I think about that, first of all, that she had the courage to do that. She calls him out of the violence. In her wisdom, she uses the exact right call. Because why he's so wounded is he's just been called a slave and a nothing. 
Abigail is calling him to the kingship he wishes for himself. He's frustrated. He has no legitimacy. He's angry. He's a human male with all those human male things. And human females are also absolutely important. This isn't picking on men. We're all dorks, all of us. <laughs> and there's this woman. What kind of king will you be? Because you're already my king. And I'm already looking to you to show me what that looks like. She puts a balm on the honor um, rift through all the gifts that she brought. That's the appropriate honorable response. In fact, it would be a lot more than she would have had to give in the first place, so Nabal's out of luck there. But so much more importantly, she has given him the status he so craves. She has pulled him from the downward spiral that he had found himself in by calling him to the higher calling of God. What has God asked of you? How will you do it? What kind of king will you be? And all of us face this in our own lives. When we feel reactive or angry, what kind of Christian, what kind of daughter of God am I going to be today? What kind of sons of God do I hope my sons will be? So he, he stops. He does not attack. He accepts the gifts. And he speaks good words like a good king should. And he goes on his way. And even though this seems like a story of violence and vengeance, it's really a comedy. You know why? Because there's a marriage at the end. <laughs> Abigail and David, we learn, later marry. Nabal is struck by a heart attack, so it wasn't up to David to decide the end of Nabal. In a moment of remorse and realizing how badly he had done before God, what choice had Nabal made? Had he made the choice of a king? No. And then in marrying Abigail, further that legitimacy is cemented. So this story becomes important because David rules in uh, Hebron. The Najeb becomes part of David's united kingdom. The Calebites were a powerful clan and a powerful tribe. This is a tribal alliance. His children, his household, become part of this bigger uh, story of God, even bigger than David himself, um, because David's just a dude who's living out as best he can what God has asked him to do, just like us. So the legitimacy comes and flows again, another wave of legitimacy through uh, Abigail and David's union, which unifies the Caleb, the Kelebite uh, the clan, the Zenazite clan, all the different clans that are all associated there. And the honor of that clan 
Nabal is not able to have a lasting impact to destroy the honor of that clan through David now and the, and the words of Abigail endure. Wisdom wins out. Courage mattered. And honor is restored. Pretty cool story, right? So we're going to explore more of it over the next two weeks as we look more deeply into Abigail and where her wisdom is and, uh, and into some of the other flavors and threads of this story. So, right? Let us take a minute to reflect on this question. What kind of king, what kind of child of God will we be? Amazing God, for these stories that help us learn about you more deeply and fully, we are thankful. Amen.